Hi, folks. It's Rabbi Sharon Brouse here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. We are reading Parshat Tazria Mitzora this week. This is right there in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And Jews in communities all around the world are struggling and wrestling with this Torah portion this week. It also happens to be Ikar's birthday Torah portion. So I remember very clearly 17 years ago, standing before a packed room in the Robertson Art Studio in the spring of 2004, on that very first Shabbat, faced with the challenge of translating a Torah portion that was about contagious erupting skin lesions into a message that would inspire all of us to birth a new kind of community with an old new way of practicing Judaism in the world. And I remember that I had a kind of New York, New York attitude about it. If we can make it here, we can make it anywhere. And I thought if I can preach in, in a way on Tazria Mitzora, then the book of Genesis would be a breeze if we made it to the fall. So this Torah portion will always be associated in my mind with that birth moment for Ikar. But several years after Ikar came into the world, my prominent association with this Torah portion shifted from Ikar's birth moment to another moment, which was Hart Campbell's Bar Mitzvah. I know that I will remember for the rest of my life when Hart stood before our community and he talked about his struggle with the Torah that compares the Mitzorah, a person who's afflicted with this mysterious skin disease, Tzara'at, to be shamed in front of the whole community as he goes out to declare himself Tamei, Tamei, which we translate sometimes as impure, impure, or unclean, unclean, and today I'll translate as unwell, unwell. Later on this morning, you're going to hear Mateo's own struggle with this Torah portion and this piece in particular as well and his unique perspective on it. But in the two years since Hart and his big sister Ruby were tragically killed in a car accident, as we have grieved with Gail and Colin and the whole community, and as we've wrestled in really unprecedented ways through the pandemic with questions of illness and wellness, calamity and catastrophe, I have thought again and again about Hart's struggle with this Parsha. And I've thought about his conclusion too, which was so powerful that I shared it at Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur about a year and a half ago, B'Shem Omro in his name, that the public declaration that a person makes when they have tzara'at, I'm unwell, I'm unwell. It, it not only makes sense, but is an act of grace. If we think of the Mitzorah, the person who's suffering in this way, as someone who's dealing with anxiety, depression, or OCD, Hart knew something about the human heart, and he understood human struggles, and he saw how the stigma around mental illness might lead people who are suffering to withdraw from the world precisely when they needed help the most. He realized that it's only when we step forward and share what we're struggling with, only when we're willing to declare unwell, unwell, I'm broken, I'm broken, 
that we might be embraced with love and support by circles of community. And I still shiver at the power of that analysis out of the mouth of a 13-year-old child. Later this morning, you will get to hear another brilliant interpretation from another brilliant and sensitive young mind and heart as Mateo shares his perspective. It's with tremendous gratitude this morning to Hart and to Mateo and to all of those teachers who've wrestled with this difficult text that I want today to add my interpretation to theirs. I will start a bit earlier in the parasha in our Torah portion, where we're first introduced to this strange illness, Tzara'at, which is understood to be an external indication, a, a, a warnings of some kind of internal problem. Because Tzara'at is a disease that can spread quickly throughout both the body of the individual who has it and also throughout the community, early diagnosis is absolutely essential. So I want to invite you to look with me at one particular moment in the evaluation of this mysterious affliction. It says in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 3, that someone who has a suspicious skin rupture potential evidence of this illness, Sarat, is brought before the Kohen, the priest, for an assessment. So imagine for a moment going to your dermatologist for an assessment of a spot that appears on the surface of your skin. The Kohen, the priest's role is very simple. He's called to determine if the illness is surface or if it's more than skin deep. The Kohen gets really close and looks at it really carefully. If he perceives it to be no more than just a surface indicator, then the case is dismissed. Uh, take a simple topical ointment and you'll be fine in a couple days. But if the Kohen determines that the affliction is amok meorbisaro, deeper than the skin, then and only then, the person is declared tame, impure, or unwell, or contaminated. So just for a moment, I want to state the obvious, which is if your doctor wrongly diagnoses the spot on your skin as non-cancerous, even if it is in fact cancer, you are still in danger. You still need treatment and you ignore it at your own peril. But in contrast, Sarat, this biblical mysterious illness is determined solely on the basis of the Kohen's proclamation. If he doesn't call it an affliction, it's not an affliction. But if he declares your ailment to actually be tzara'at, your whole life turns upside down. Your clothing is torn. Your hair is shaved. You wear the garments of a mourner. And you call out, as Hart and Mateo note, tame, tame, unwell, unwell. And as long as that affliction persists, you are sent into isolation, forced to quarantine outside the camp. There's no normal. Once that declaration is made, the full force of the community is dedicated to addressing the problem and to rooting out the illness, lest that illness spread and infect us all. So this year, I found myself particularly curious about the question of how the Kohen makes such an important decision when literally everything's at stake. Rambam Maimonides says in Hilchot Tumatzarat, he, he notes that the challenge here is to determine just how deep the blemish reaches under the surface. Is it just a rash 
or is it a menacing, life-altering affliction? How deeply embedded is the illness in the system? In other words, is this something we can live with or something that will kill us if we don't treat it? Think about that in light of these past couple of tumultuous days. I saw a few times some version of this post this week. We interrupt our coverage of the protests of the police murder of Dante Wright, which interrupted the trial of the police murder of George Floyd, which interrupted the coverage of the mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado, which interrupted the coverage of the anti-Asians shooting spree in Atlanta to bring you coverage of the point blank police shooting of 13 year old Adam Toledo, which has now been interrupted to bring you a mass shooting at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis. God help us. This makes me think about Hart Campbell's take on the Parsha. What if Tamay Tamay is not an acknowledgement of guilt, but a cry for help? This position's put forward in the Talmud and Moid Katan, unwell, unwell. This is the wailing of a person in deep distress. It's an invitation to the community, to the public, to engage, to pray for mercy on behalf of the one who's in pain. This is happening to me, the Mitzorah is saying out loud. Don't you dare look away. I need you to see my pain. I need you to give a damn. I need your help. I need your love. The Mitzorah, the person who's afflicted with this illness, has been walking through the streets for years, crying, Tame, Tame, unwell, unwell. The system is broken. We are broken. But we, many of us, especially those who don't have this affliction appearing on our skin, we don't hear it. And when the Mitsura approaches, we avert our eyes. We change channels. We find another route home so we don't have to get uncomfortable until we have to, until something happens. Maybe it's one of these terrible shootings. Maybe it's the murder of the 13-year-old boy who so resembles my own 12-year-old boy. Maybe it's so many things happening in rapid succession that at some point the chorus of pain grows so loud that we simply can no longer ignore it. We have no choice but to pay attention. Today, there's no Kohen in our midst. There's no one person who makes the ultimate determination of how serious the sickness is that endangers our society. There's no one definitive voice. Instead, there are thousands of competing voices all fighting for their narrative to be the one that's heard. And many people have as much at stake in arguing that there's nothing to worry about as there are people who argue that this is serious and we can't let this go on any longer. And it's easy in all that noise to lose our way. But the Torah says in the book of Exodus, We are all a nation of priests. Each one of us is charged not to turn away, but to decipher between a surface cut, a rash, and a deep-rooted, life-threatening illness. So who and what we listen to matters. So I want to tell you what I've been listening to this week the voices of the mothers. You probably heard by now that when Dante Wright 
saw that the police were signaling to pull him over, he called his mother, a woman named Katie Wright. She was on the phone with him moments before and seconds after he was shot and killed. A couple of days later, the mothers of Trayvon Martin, of Michael Brown and Eric Garner came together to lift their voices to the tragedy and the travesty of violence toward black men and boys in our country and to offer words of love and consolation to Katie Wright. To my sister, you are not alone, we're here for you, they said. I'm hearing this week echoes of my friend, Reverend Najuma Smith-Pollard, praying for all of the mothers who've lost children. The womb is crying, the womb is hemorrhaging, the womb is hurting, is what Najuma says. I'm listening to George Floyd's family, who stepped out of the courtroom this week, where the person who killed their beloved family member was on trial. In order to offer words of comfort and support to the Wright family, we stand with you, they said. I'm listening to Fred Gutenberg, the father of Jamie, who was 16 years old when she was shot down in Parkland, who writes about waking up this week to the horror of the mass shooting in Indianapolis and offers his love and his strength to the families of the victims. I'm listening this week to the voices of those who've taken to the street in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Those who are tired of having their neighbors, their friends, their sons shot. I'm hearing their rage. I'm hearing their grief their exhaustion, I'm hearing their public lament, their call to action. I'm hearing the voice of, of Charles Blow who writes just this morning about the connection between gun violence and police violence. He says the police justify their militarization because they know that in a country with easy access to guns, any encounter could be a deadly encounter. These are the survivors. These are the, the people who've lost the most. These are the people who get closest to the wound and they're able to see what other people might not notice. And they are begging the rest of us to see that this is not a surface rash, that these are not isolated incidents, individual tragedies, lone gunmen, bad apples, troubled individuals. This is a dangerous affliction that lives deep beneath the surface, that has taken root in the system of our collective body, an illness that threatens to destroy the whole body if it's not rooted out. What they see is a pattern of racism and grotesque violence and a pattern of disgraceful inaction. What they yearn for is justice and accountability. They want to make sure that we call this what it is, so that the contagion of violence, gun violence and police violence doesn't spread, causing, costing more precious lives, so that it doesn't leave more grieving mothers and more shattered hearts and more broken families. I know even as I say these words that it is absolutely terrifying to contemplate honestly diagnosing the many illnesses that are afflicting our society today. It means confronting long-held assumptions. It means reckoning with our own culpability and complicity. It means hearing voices that we would much rather marginalize and seeing truths that we do not want to see. And yet the Torah is incredibly clear. When signs of the affliction appear, we have no choice but to investigate, to get close, to assess, and to route it out before it spreads and endangers everyone. I bless us in the days ahead 
with consolation and with sacred agitation. I bless us with hope and with rage, with love and with courage. It will take all of this and so much more in order to eradicate this deep-rooted illness from our society and in order to begin to move forward on a life-affirming journey toward healing. In a moment, we'll say Mourner's Kaddish together. I invite you to lift up the names of your loved ones with and for whom you grieve. Some of you are experiencing recent loss and some of you are marking an anniversary of the death of a loved one. And all of us collectively will lift up today the names of those whose lives have been taken from them this past week. In Chicago, a 13-year-old boy named Adam Toledo. And with him, the Latino community across this country that trembles at the sight of police officers so willing to shoot and kill a child with his hands in the air. In Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 20-year-old Dante Wright, his mother, his family, his child, and his entire community. In Indianapolis, those eight people who went to work to care for and provide for their families and did not come home because even after mass shooting, after mass shooting, our country has refused to take basic steps in order to protect the lives of those most vulnerable by whom we mean every single person in this country. Matthew Alexander, Samaria Blackwell, Amarjeet Johal, Jasvinder Kaur, Jasvinder Singh, Amarjeet Schoen, Carly Smith, and John Weissert. And with them, our hearts also go to the entire Sikh community, which has been so hard hit by this latest shooting, even in the midst of so much trauma from the last two decades of attacks, assaults, and hate crimes. And our hearts go to every person who's a survivor of a shooting or mass shooting in this country for whom they experience today the reverberative trauma of yet another unnecessary and terrible loss of life. Hey everybody, Randy Sklar here. I'm an eCar member. And Jason Sklar here. I'm an eCar fan. Yeah, and we uh, love eCar so much. We love the message that eCar uh, delivers in their many podcasts. And we feel like most people feel there aren't a lot of podcasts in this world. I think there are only two or three. There's only a couple. So what we'd like you to do is donate to eCar at ecar-la.org uh, so that they can do more podcasts and more cool things because Lord knows the world needs more podcasts. Yep.